Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports, no more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be... Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider.
Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he started acting when he was 10 years old and he really hasn't stopped being a prolific creative artist ever since. I had the unbelievable pleasure of doing a live event at the Atlantic Theater Company and my guest was the incomparable Ben Stiller. Welcome Ben to the podcast. A-OK. met at least 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago when we were fetuses. Yes. Super Before young. we were born. Before yeah. we were born, running around New York wanting to make plays. Um, yep. But the thing that's really extraordinary, and many of you here may or may not remember this play, but one of the things that made me want to be an actor uh, was a play I saw called The House of Blue Leaves. Uh, you were extraordinary in it. Everyone in that play John Mahoney, just people who really, really remained um, inspirations for me. And so to see you and remember sitting at Lincoln Center and seeing you in that play, and now all these years later to have you here personally for me is pretty lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we were sort of in the same orbits and Naked Angels you were yep. talking about, which we were involved with. And, yep. Um, yeah, and that was a long time ago. I mean. Blue Leaves was 1986, I guess. So yeah, that's... yeah. We were super young. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> many people here were not even born. I just yeah, want you to that's take true. that in. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ben is the uh, prodigy of Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, who were Did you say part prodigy. Prodigy. You Prod were a child Pro prodigy. Pro Pro oh, okay. Progeny well, or prodigy? Pro prodigious. All right, I'll pro take prodigy. Progeny. Um, Stiller and Mira were just, when I was growing up, uh, an extraordinary couple. A, because they were hilarious. B, because he was a small Jewish man and she was sort of an Irish goddess. And they found a way to talk about their relationship and make it hilarious and accessible. Yes. Um, for yeah. me as a viewer, but growing up in a house where your parents were on the Carol Burnett show and the Mike Douglas show and Ed Sullivan and Carson, the things that were worshipped on our television in right. my house that we watched religiously, you were living. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was our lives, uh, my sister and I, and that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, my parents were working all the time and it was a different era. Uh, I think, you know, media and television and, uh, you know, show business was just, it was obviously just a, a time when things were more um, simpler, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I don't mean Did like... Did it feel that way in your house? Um, no, it was very complicated in our house because my parents were constantly, you know, trying to do their act and work on, on I, I didn't know, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know what your parents are really up to. And, you know, you don't really yeah. care to, you're right? You're just kind of like living your life and your parents. But I was interested in what my parents were doing um, because it seemed exciting to me. And from a young age, I was excited by movies and 
the sort of the thing that they were doing. I mean, my sister and I would go with them when they would go and do summer stock tours, or they would go and do a nightclub, play a nightclub. They played, you know, uh, in in Reno and Vegas and Atlantic City, and uh, and then they do variety shows, and they do game shows, and all these like very 70s things, which you don't really. I mean, now there's they're actually game shows are coming back now, I guess, but back then it was a it was a thing that. Um, celebrities did, and my parents, they go out to LA and do these things, but they always stayed in New York and would go out, and I'd, I'd love going out to California with them and having that experience, or I remember them going away to California and waiting for them to come back, but there was a room we had in our apartment where they... Uh, I saw that movie. <laughs> Jodie Foster. Yes. Was in it. <laughs> it was called It was called The Big Living Room, and yeah. um, but that was the room where they would go, and they'd close the door, and they'd work on their material and they'd rehearse their act and they'd write commercials they did a lot of radio commercials and they that was where their creative process was happening right in this apartment after a while they got, ended up getting an, an office on 57th street so it was always part of our our existence and um so that was what you know it, and and i think it probably influenced me in wanting to be in show business were you aware that they were celebrities, which may mean something else in the 70s than it does now in terms of how global the reach is when you do work? But what, did you feel like they were famous? Yeah, I mean, they were famous in that they were, people would stop them on the street and they were never, like, they never were doing, they weren't doing movies a lot. My dad did some roles in movies, my mom did some roles in movies, but they were on television doing these, they never had a series until my dad did Seinfeld later, or my mom got, did Archie Bunker's place where she was uh, the cook, Veronica. Um, she, And then you she know, had her own series yes. later. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, but they never really were, it was like, it, it was kind of like they were doing their thing, which is their act, and that was the main, that was the main focus, and they did, they had Sullivan shows 30-something times, and uh, and they do those other shows you mentioned, Mike Douglas show, and guesting on things. But um, people would recognize them on the street or stop them, and uh, you know. But it was a different world pre, uh, you know, internet, pre cell phones. You know, being on television was something. You know, you watch TV and at night, and you know, or, they were your parents. Yeah, and they would show up every once in a while there, and and that was exciting. You know, it was exciting for were us. Were you aware of there being exciting times? and lean times? Or did you feel like... That's, that's the part I think as a kid you don't know, you're not that in, involved with it. You know, you just, your parents are just doing their thing. And, you know, later in life you become aware of, oh, this was a time when it was, you know, things were going well. Or, you know, I remember, I remember a time when, before my dad was doing Seinfeld where he wasn't working as much and my parents weren't working together. And my mom was always much happier not working. My dad loved to work. Right. My mom loved to work also, but my dad would really, I think it was just his life's blood. He like, needed it. Yeah, in a yeah. Because he came from a very different background than my mother did. He came from the Lower East Side. Uh, you know, he was born in 1927 and very, very poor. They moved 13 times when he was a kid. His dad was a bus driver and a cab driver. Huh. And, um, you know, from a young age, he'd go and, like, go see vaudeville shows with his dad. And he realized that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a stand up comedian. and do that, and Eddie Cantor and people like that, those were his idols. And my mom hated all those people. She hated, she hated the she three- She didn't like the stand-up world. She didn't like the stand-up world. She hated the Three Stooges. She thought they were horrible. Uh, <laughs> and um, my dad was just loved that. So he was, and he's the one who got her into doing comedy. 
so for him, it was always like that was what you know made that filled him up and made him happy. My mom loved to work, but she was also very happy when she was not working to read books and do the Sunday Times crossword puzzle and kind of you know so write. She had and balance also. in yeah. her life. She had more balance, I think. Um, but you know, look, it's hard. Like when you're a creative person, like how do you? You know, it's hard to regulate that. I see that in my own life, you know, just figuring that out. So in retrospect, it's easy to look back and say, okay, well, my mom had more, you know, but she had more of a sense of herself when she wasn't working. But my dad is like, you know, he's so funny. And it's just like, why shouldn't he work and be happy doing that? So, yeah. but his, you know, it was an interesting way that it worked out with him because my father ended up, you know, on Seinfeld, getting a lot of recognition for doing that role separate from working with my mom. And... I think that made him very happy doing that, but he also loved working with my mom more than anything, too, so. It's amazing. It's really hard. I mean, I've done a few things with my husband. It's, it's um, complicated to work with your partner. And then, yeah, and that was, that was the core of their work. I yeah. mean, that was really, because they weren't, as, as actors, they were, they were struggling actors in New York, and until they came up with the idea of doing this act together, they, they weren't having any success. They were living in, you know, walk-up apartments and, you know, just like hand-to-mouth. So that was always the, the core for them. Well, I love them. I love everything about Stiller and Mira, and I am uh, continuously blown away at the body of work. And speaking of, like, blown away by the body of work, Ben, it is insane how many movies you have done. I know. You've done like a million That's movies. not a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe we'll talk about balance in a yes. minute in terms right. of... Uh, uh, what are you saying? Thematically, nothing. I'm saying okay. nothing. I am here to listen. Um, I'm working on listening, Ben. You were given a, a camera by your dad, I think, when you were young. And you started, yes, yes uh, a movie camera? What was it? Like, it wasn't a cell phone. What did he, um, what did you get? <laughs> I just had this image of, like, an infant and a camera being placed next to him. I said you were a prodigy. <laughs> a prodigious prodigy. Yes. Um, he came out of the womb with like a super Tiger eight. Woods of film, Jewish Tiger Woods of filmmaking. Um... No. I feel like you are. I no, feel no, like no. You I are the Jewish Tiger anyway. Woods of filmmaking. That would no, be no, fair. No, no, no. I'm not. I didn't mean it to sound like that. But I, um, I just meant that, like, because his it. father, like, yes. apparently trained Gave him. him clubs yeah. That, like, or Agassiz's right. dad, who just really was mean to him about it. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad was very mean to me, but no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, he was. He was. I was interested in it, and he's totally supported it. And, uh, you know, this is the days of the Super 8 camera and Super 8 film where you could shoot uh, sound on film, and then you'd send it off to the, uh, you know, to Kodak and get it back three days later and uh, put it, you know, in your projector and watch it or get, like, a little movieola and cut it together. And I loved that whole process. And so from, like, the time I was, like, eight or nine, I was making little home movies uh, in the apartment with my sister and, and my friends, and, and my dad was supportive of it. Um, so yeah. in a way, your, your being a director is like no surprise. Like if you look back, the actor maybe is more surprising than the director. Well, I guess it's all kind of, none of it's surprising, no. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's all. <laughs> no, no, I mean in that it's like not surprising that that was what we were around yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time. So it was kind of like that yeah. was the direction I, I was interested in it. I mean, it's interesting. Like, my son's not interested really in movies at all. 
so you know he's 13 and and um, uh, but for me I was like really into it and uh, my parents were doing something that I thought was kind of different because they were doing their comedy and their and their act and their li and a lot of live performing and and I thought I, I I was interested in the filmmaking part of it since I was that age. Um, and I, I've seen, actually saw like interviews that they did with my parents where I'm, my sister and I are being interviewed and I'm talking about like that I don't want to do comedy and I want to be serious, I'm like 10 years old. And they're like, well, would you cast your parents in one of your movies? I'm like, no, because they do comedy. <laughs> I'm like saying it really seriously. <laughs> what? So you were like, a, you were kind of a snob. I was, I think I was trying to just differentiate myself. And then I, when, when I discovered my own uh, comedic people. That's when I, I was like, "Oh, I like I like this." Well, yeah, you did discover some comedic people, um, right? But I mean, like the people who were my, yes, you know, your as, peers. No, I meant like people like who I was a fan of, you know, uh, starting with people, you know, like Steve Martin or Bill Murray, or and then I started to watch SCTV and those so shows. So people who were inspiring you. Yes. So right. when you started out, like, I think about. Albert Brooks films, like things that I really loved. Right. Who were some, those were heroes of yours. Yes, Albert Brooks for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, you know, am I allowed to say Woody Allen? I don't know. I was <laughs> at the time. Remember you asked me before if it was live, right. and I was like, kind of, and we can edit. Right, okay, we'll edit this so part we'll, out. we'll talk right. about it after He's not allowed we'll to be talking about. But I mean, for me at the time, and it's interesting though, and we can edit this whole part out, so only yeah. us, and nobody will talk about it. But, um, no, because I, uh, yeah, for me, when I saw Annie Hall, my mother took me to a screening of Annie Hall when it came out, was it 1976 or 77 or something like that? And I was 11 or 12, and I remember going to some screening that she got invited to uh, of this movie called Anadonia, which is, what, I guess, what it was called originally. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is so funny and so cool. And I didn't, it was about, you know, a relationship and a breakup, and I don't know why I thought I related to that at 11. Um, <laughs> But I did, and then it was interesting, about a year ago, I showed uh, Annie Hall to my daughter. <laughs> um, you know, different experience, <laughs> because it's different looking at it, you know, and through this a, a different lens and how Don't she saw Don't show her it. Manhattan. Yeah, no, I mean, and, but it's really, anyway, those movies, Edit this part out. But they, they were, those were movies that were, um, you know, I, I was like, wow, the, the, I, I liked those movies at the time. And then there were movies, other movies like Jaws and, you know, um, Dog Day Afternoon. And, and then into the early 80s, I kind of got into more comedies like Caddyshack and stuff like that, and, um, or The Jerk. And, um, and that was, that, that was, that got me excited and wanting to do that kind of thing. And then when I saw actually Albert Brooks doing short films on Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, that blew my mind. Can we talk about that? Because you actually were on Saturday Night Live, which is amazing. Because very few people, even though that show's been around 40 years now? Like 45 almost, Is that yeah. true? That's yeah. insane. Yeah, it's That's crazy. That's kind of insane. No, it's an institution. It's, yeah. yeah. So this is my understanding of the story, and you can tell me if this is right or not right. You're in House of Blue Leaves. You make a film that John Mahoney and you do, sort of a, a spoof on The Color of Money. Right. right? Exactly, yes. It was, yeah, which was about pool, and then we did it about bowling. Sure, yeah. like you do. Yeah. Funnier, actually. Right. Better. 
um, with you as the Tom Cruise character and, right. and John Mahoney as Paul Newman. Yes, I made it with two friends of mine, Ralph Howard and Steve Clayman. We made it all made it together. Incredible. Yeah. And somehow that film, which can we see that film? We yeah, we can. Okay. Yes, we can. So we can after all we're gonna it. all watch the movie. <laughs> it's um, you know, it's six minutes long. I um, got six minutes. Yeah. In today's date, like that's like four hours in, sure. yeah. in, no, it's, in millennial time. Yes, like, for definitely. sure. So so you do this movie, and somehow it makes its way to Lorne Michaels. And I want to understand, because a lot of yeah. us make things. Right. How did that trip happen? Uh, it was it, interesting, because obviously it's pre, pre you know, YouTube. Everything. Pre, pre, pre everything. <laughs> olden days. And Prehistoric. Made it on film. Yeah. There was a documentary filmmaker that in, in my building who let us use his equipment, uh, Dick Young. It was really, it was really nice. And we, so we all cut it together on his, his flatbed, and I put the money that I was making from the, the show that I was in into making it. And, and we didn't even know what we were going to do with it, but we thought, oh, it would be cool if it was on Saturday Night Live. Um, but Saturday Night Live didn't really even take short films from people who weren't on Saturday Night Live. Um, right. This is why but, I'm asking, because yeah. it's extraordinary. And I didn't, I should have thought that through before we made the film. <laughs> but, you know, when you're young and ignorant, it's, it's a good thing sometimes. And so we did this little thing, and, and it actually has, yeah, John Mahoney. My parents are in it. Uh, my grandfather who is plays in it. the girlfriend in it? Um, Nina Tremblay. Yeah. Yeah who was my girlfriend at the time. So it was all like a family affair and everybody was, you know, it was, it was fun. Um, and we had a great time and we made it. And then it was like, how do we get it to Saturday Night Live? And John Lovitz, who had, had, was on Saturday Night Live at the time, had come to see the House of Blue Leaves at Lincoln Center. And I reached out to him and I, I said, hey, do you think, is there any way to get this to, to Lauren Michaels to see? And he said, meet me downstairs at 30 Rock and, uh, you know, like in an hour and I'll, I'll bring it up. And so I brought him a, v, you know, VHS of it and, um, and gave it to him and then he, and he went up and then he called me like, I got an, it was a, it was like a Friday afternoon and I got a call like two hours later, like come down to Saturday Night Live, they want to put it on the show tomorrow night. It's too long, six minutes is too long. <laughs> you have to edit out like three yeah. minutes. And um, it was because, and Lauren liked it, and Jim Downey, who was the producer with Lauren and the head writer, um, who was re a re is a really funny guy, he was the one who, who said, yeah, this is, this is funny, let's put it on. They'd never done anything like that before. And so from that, um, and then I was there at, at Saturday Night Live when they put it on the air, and I watched as the audience didn't really laugh at it. <laughs> Um, you know, they're like, who are these people? What's going on? And, uh, but from that, they invited me to, come, to make an audition tape. And uh, so I went off and made an audition tape and did a couple of characters. And I didn't even do characters, really. Um, really? So <laughs> really. I, was, I didn't have a, some, a career like, uh, of that, in a way. Yeah, sort so of. I mean, yeah. I weren't I, in you yet. Yes, I never felt like that was my thing. You know what I mean? I was doing it to because oh yeah, this will be fun. I'll try this, and I, but I never. I, I I always felt more comfortable with the directing part of it or the, the acting with not doing the characters. Well, you're an extraordinary mimic because the Tom Cruise that you do is amazing. You do an Eddie Munster yeah, but, better than Eddie. I mean, these well, were well, nobody else does Eddie Munster. <laughs> So let's be real. Yeah, uh, but you're still really good at it, <laughs> my friend. 
Um, um, so it turns out you do have um, a gift, but I, you maybe yeah. not were aware of it. No, I, I, thank you. I, I it wasn't. It, it never was my. You know, it wasn't like what I would live for, really. You know, um, but I had fun doing it. So we made this audition tape, and then they they said, "Yeah, you can come on and be a featured player and an apprentice writer," which is like the sort of lowest form of writer you can have there. And it was so exciting because and. So you yeah. didn't have to do the thing where you like are in a club and Lorne and his people come and watch you do stand-up. Because that's sort of more traditionally when I hear people on the show talk about their experience. Right, right. They had that like terrifying... Yeah, yeah I never did the audition like that. I just did the audition tape. So Jeff Kahn, my friend and roommate and writing partner at the time, and I did a little act at the China Club. <laughs> that we crafted, like the, where it was sort of like us doing sketches, and we would invite people on Monday nights to come see it. And uh, I did like Bono at a. Well, we did end up doing Bono at a bar mitzvah on the Ben Stiller show. <laughs> we did a version of that, and he would do his um, Bob Dylan, and we just did we did a couple of different sketches, and that kind of was. We never did that to audition for anybody. That was what we were doing at the time. Well, somehow. I as I said earlier, I've spent like two months just beginning to scratch the surface of Ben Stiller content, and I ended up losing like a week watching the Ben Stiller show, which is what happened after you left Saturday Night Live, which yes, is a right. rare thing. You left pretty quickly. Yeah, well, because there was this opportunity to do um, a sketch show on MTV, the best. Yeah, and um, they were starting to do programming at that time. They hadn't any, ever done original programming, but the, the deal was you had to, you could do a sketch show, but as long as you showed videos every five minutes. Um, With like so, pop-ups. Yeah, it was <laughs> even before, yeah, it was just like, and they said, oh, do a sketch show, but work the work the videos into the sketches. But I thought the Ben Stiller show was easy. on Fox. It was eventually, but first there was a Ben Stiller show on okay. MTV with where we had videos every five minutes. <laughs> and not so much and sketch. Yeah, I, or we tried to literally like, it's like, how can we work that Sting video into this sketch about, you know, and it was, a, it was sort of a, like a show about me having a show at MTV. And, um, and one, of the, one of the episodes was us, me, and I was sort of like an asshole character who wanted his, like, to be a star. I don't know where that came from, um, but the, uh, the the one of the shows was me wanting to have a show on Fox, and because the the newly formed Fox network, um, and so they had a few shows on the air, and so we did an episode where I was we were doing parodies of Fox shows, and then the people at Fox saw that show, and they said, "Hey, do you want to come and do a show at Fox? Because you made fun of us," <laughs> which is how show business works. Um, and that was, so did you already know Janine Garofalo at that uh, point? I did. I knew Janine, no, I started, I was starting to go out to Los Angeles, because uh, we were doing the Ben Stiller show on MTV in New York. I started to go out to Los Angeles to to try to work on the show, and that's when I met Janine. And I, Andy Dick. Yeah, and I and met them through, Bob like. Bob Odenkirk, and yes. just extraordinarily funny people. Yeah, and Odenkirk I met at Saturday Night Live, because he was a writer, and Conan was a writer back then. And Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien. And, um, and Odenkirk was like the best sketch writer at Saturday Night Live in 1987, you know, 86, 87. And uh, so I met, but then when I came out to LA, that's when I met Janine and, um, and. Judd Apatow, you knew already? Or? No, Judd, I met in line at, in LA at an MTV Unplugged concert. 
Yeah, and he was doing stand-up. And you know how they say, like, so Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about 10,000 hours, right? Like having 10,000 hours of practice. And then the other part that has to happen is, like, luck. Right place, right time. Your story is filled with kind of these miraculous moments. Like, Judd Apatow has gone on, like you, to make an extraordinary number of films. Yes. That yeah. are very happy-making for right. all of us. Will Ferrell, where did you meet Will Ferrell? Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> let's do like that phone, of, let's I don't him. remember where I met Will for the first time. I mean, okay. I, I, around, you know? Just around. <laughs> I mean, like I remember, like I'll tell you, I, like I remember when I met Andy Dick for the first time because I, I was in Chicago doing a little part in a movie, uh, a Patrick Swayze movie, and I had this little part, but I was there in Chicago for like four months because my part worked once every like three weeks. And um, I tried to make a short film while I was there to fill my time. And, uh, and Jeff Kahn said, oh, you got to meet my friend Andy Dick uh, to be in your movie. And so he was doing Second City in Chicago. And uh, so he said, OK, I'll come over to meet you at your hotel. And so I get this knock on the door at my hotel. And I open the door. And there's nobody there. And I look down. And there's an infant on the floor. <laughs> And I look like down the hallway, there's nobody there. It's just this infant on the floor. Um, and it was, and then like Andy pops his head out. And he goes, hi. <laughs> and it was his son. That's a good gag. Yeah. So he couldn't find a babysitter. And uh... <laughs> so that's how I met Andy Dick. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, but, but Judd, we met. And, and I, I was, we, I knew he was a stand-up. And we had some friends in common. And I said, yeah, I'm trying to get this show on the air the sketch show, and we just started talking and then uh, hanging out, and, and he just seemed like he knew what he was doing. He, he, would just, he was writing a lot for Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold back then, and helping write uh, TV specials, Gary Shandling, people like that. Who are all on that show, and yeah. they all do Yeah, but he things. was, you know, and Judd was, I was like, whatever, 20, you know, maybe like 25, and Judd was probably like 23 or something like that, so he was already doing that. And uh, so then we just got together, and when he came on board, we all of a sudden things like started to happen. And then all of a sudden we got that show on Fox. I mean, it took a couple of years though of of doing it. Right. Well, the next thing that's sort of as I went through your life, um, reality bites. Where's your book? People... You need a big book. <laughs> this is your life. Uh, reality bites. I'm sure all of you in this room have seen it. Became uh, for those of us who are part of the Gen X generation as it became known. Right. Um, there was a book at the time that sort of defined us, people born. Yeah. Um, it's funny because when I hear Gen X, like I was with Gen X, I was thought, oh, Gen X is young people. Now well, it's now it's not. Well <laughs> it's like it's now us. it's people getting their AARP <laughs> cards. Yeah. Uh, Gen um, X cards. It's really crazy, isn't it? <laughs> no. At first it really hurt my feelings, but there are so many discounts. Do you ever look through the magazine? <laughs> Like, this is amazing. Now I, like, I want to, like, pretend yeah. that I could be someone who has an AARP card. Yeah, um, I hear you. When they card me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> that and my AAA card, amazing. Amazing nice. discounts. I'm sorry you didn't use your AARP card tonight to get a discount here. <laughs> um, Reality Bites holds up. Amazingly, it 20 years ago, maybe more. It's actually point? 25 years because we're doing a reunion for the Tribeca Film Festival for the 25th anniversary. Soon. Yeah, yeah, in April or this is April, May. Yeah. We're doing May, May 4th. Yeah. yeah. So 
you got to direct that movie. I did, yeah. That was before Cable Guy, correct? Yes. So this is your this first, is first movie, yeah. And it's an indie film? It wasn't an that's the thing, it wasn't an indie film. Universal Studios made it, but it, it was a cool vibe. It like had that. yeah. It was an, like a tweener kind of thing where uh, so Stacy Cher and Danny DeVito were producing it and um, they Helen Childers who wrote it, they had been working with her because it was she was writing about her life and then they they brought it to me, I guess, because they'd seen the stuff I was doing on the Ben Stiller show. I don't know how that related for them, but you know, we, we talked and then started to work on it together, and, uh, and then we did it, yeah. And, and is that and the first time you worked adapting somebody else's material? Well, it was her material. I yeah. just was directing it, but like, you know, it, it, when you're directing a movie, you're working with a writer, and you're kind of, you know, you, know, you have this process of development, and, and she was, and to this day, we still, work together uh, we're, and are working on stuff and she's, she's an amazing writer and so I but but I, I ended up in it because we started to talk about the scenes and my, I was trying to figure out my approach as a director to be a part of that story because I felt like I wasn't sort of what what's going on with the you know the main characters so Ethan Hawke, Winona Ryder, yes. Jimmy Garofalo, yeah, Steve Zahn, and Steve Zahn, and, yeah a and bunch of roommates and you're you know, the grown-up yes the I was the quote-unquote grown-up and uh I was like, at that point I was 27, and I think everybody else was like 20, you know, four or something like that. And it was, you know, in the story of like, you know, what, what do you do in life when you're out of school and trying to figure it out, and. So did that movie break through in its time, like in real time? Or is it something that became uh, historically important in yeah. that moment? I, I think Blue Chips was the number one movie that we, op that weekend that we opened. But do we Nick remember Nolte. that? No. Nick Nolte and Shaq. Does anybody remember this movie? Basketball movie? They are my next two yeah. guests on Little Known Facts of the Atlantic, as it turns out. Crazy. You're going to pop out of the yes. room. Uh, <laughs> no, but it wasn't a big hit. It was, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big budget movie, but it, like, it, it kind of like got some, it, it, I don't know, like the reviews were okay, but it basically, it, it ended up sticking around. It's sort of like a, sort of a, I guess, a cultural sort of, timepiece yeah, in so some way. And then the, the singles, I think singles and Kicking and Screaming, Noah Baumbach's first movie. You know, those are, I think, movies from that time period you can look back and go, okay, that was a, a time. I remember Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Was that around yes. the same? Yes, that was also for like, sure. Wow, you can but that was like a serious like movie that. that people took seriously. Yeah, yeah. with Andy McDowell. <laughs> um, I want to just jump forward because then you got to direct The Cable Guy, which was a really big movie. And then you find yourself working with Robert De Niro over and over again in a yes. series of films, also with Barbara Streisand. I mean, just a host of people whose careers went on to have such a lasting legacy. And I guess I've really wanted to know, like, how was it working with Robert De Niro? And was it right. surreal even for you at that point? Um, yeah, oh, totally surreal. I mean, it, it, was, it was a very... Uh, impactful experience for me because it was Robert De Niro and I mean Barbara Streisand came later in the yeah, you know the, the second third, yeah. and third movie but um, but you know to be in a movie with Robert De Niro was kind of like a, I, did, I couldn't believe it and when they told me that he was doing it and uh, Jay Roach the director said you know that Bob really would like to do it with you I was like Bob really wants to do it with me <laughs> Uh, and, he, yeah, Jay, and Jay was like, you know, was young also. And he was like, yeah, because he, he likes to be called Bob. Call him Bob. 
I've, I've never once called him Bob in my life. Um, Did you just not ever say his name? Yeah, yeah. exactly. He yeah. who shall not be named. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, like. Yeah, just like, hey, hey, hey. How's it going, man? Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was, it was easy in a way to do that movie because it was basically the movie was to just be myself being intimidated by Robert De Niro. <laughs> that was the movie, you know, that was the dynamic. So it was like, don't act. Um, and it was really fun. It was really fun and exciting. And yeah, and then, you know, it was cool that people went to see it and liked it. When you did the first one, did you know there would be three? No. No, no, no. It just kept um, going. Yeah, and then the second, yeah, the, it, yeah, it, it, I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't, we weren't thinking that way at all. And then the second one came out, and it's interesting, because, like, for me, the first one was, like, always my favorite one, and the second one was, was great, but that one was, many, many more people saw that movie, but that was, like, a whole other, I don't know, it, it became, like, a whole other thing. But it's interesting. But you had a bunch of stuff. So Zoolander okay. went on to have more than one movie. Right. And Night at the Museum went on to have more than one. Yeah. So you've had opportunities. You know, part of what's so amazing about it, the Atlantic Theater or all these theater companies is it's almost a rep company, right? Like, the hope is that you get to kind of create a family and do plays over and over with them again. And, and in your case, you and Owen Wilson, you and Dustin Hoffman, you and many people have worked with each other over and over again. Mm -hmm. That's an extraordinarily wonderful thing that most people don't get to have happen in their careers. Is that something that you sought out? Is that coincidence that it's happening that way? Uh, well, with Owen, it was sort of like not something I sought out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I love Owen. He's like, like, he became like one of my best friends and I just genuinely enjoyed working with him. We ended, I think we, I think we've done 11 movies together, so it's, but like every time was always fun to do and to work with him. Um, and I do 11 more movies with him, you know, it's, um, but these things, like I never thought about wh what, you know, which movies would continue on in that way. And uh, it, I did appreciate being able to have the time, to, anytime I'm working with someone like De Niro or, or was, you know, was working with Robin Williams or something. That was like always exciting to me because those were my, you know, heroes. idols, my yeah. heroes. Yeah. And um, so it, it, it is, I, I think every time that happened, I always was appreciative of it, appreciative of it, feeling that. But uh, when you're in it and doing it sometimes, you know, now looking back at it, because it's been a few years since I did those movies, you know, it's, you're, when you're in it, it's a little bit, you have less perspective on it because you're in it and there's other, you know, factors, which is, okay, we're going to do this other, this next movie, and, you know, you want it to be good, and you want it to be successful, and there's that stuff, so it's kind of like, and you know what I mean? the pressures of that. Yeah. yeah, so you're in that world with it, and it's only in retrospect, when you look back and go, wow, that was amazing that I was able to have those experiences. Yeah. I think it can, you know, appreciate it more now. Well, it's also amazing because you've done those movies plus one million others, as I said earlier. And then there's the Greenbergs and the Meyerwitz and, and Meyerwitzes. Just um, any Jewish name, it's okay, yeah. <laughs> um, that you've sort of been able to kind of, like a pendulum swing back and forth between like very thoughtful, more we talked about Woody Allen films earlier, but just behavioral, character-driven stories and then like these very broad, hilarious comedies. 
um, you know, you were in a movie called, you know, Ron Burgundy. Like there have just been really, really, I guess this is what I wanna say, uh, because we only have an hour, which makes me sad. Thank you for the unbelievable amount of joy and laughter that you have brought us over the years. It's kind of no small thing. And then for doing these movies that also we see ourselves in, like for real, uh, the Greenberg film and among others. Um, you can thank me in a minute for okay. the joy I brought okay. you. Don't worry. I see you. I see you itching to talk, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, I totally get that, and I will leave time. Um, I'm I'm thanking you with my eyes. I know you are. Okay. Is that what is that that stare called? Uh, um, there's. Uh, <laughs> there's also, so there's two things I just want to make sure we talk about, okay. and then I'm going to make you close the night out with, like, the most embarrassing audition story you can think of. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really love and admire about Ben, aside from, as I said, his filmography, is the unbelievable amount of philanthropic work that you've been doing. We met early on, actually, working through Project ALS. Our dear friend Jennifer Estes was struck by ALS and many of us rallied around to help find a cure. You have been so front yeah, and center. Yeah, well, and Jennifer and her sisters started Project ALS yes. to, to help find a cure. Yeah. And that continues and that yep. work continues. And there's also the UNHCR, mm -hmm. which is really about shining a light on the issues that refugees are having all over the world. And you're an ambassador. Yeah, I became a goodwill ambassador. You know, it's funny because like I was very cynical about uh, philanthropy and and quote unquote charity work when I was younger because I was I don't know there was something there was a, I felt like insincere about it sometimes when I'd see people talking about it and yeah. for me I think it's just in life sort of getting to a point where you know when you see so much going on around you in the world you want to figure out a way to connect and get past that and you know just growing up in the show business there was a lot of benefits and. Um, you know, um, events and things that are very disconnected from the actual um, cause that they're, yeah. you know, helping. And when you actually get out into the world and connect with what's going on out there, you see there's so much screwed up stuff that's going on. And obviously right now in our, you know, in our country and really in the world, there's there's a, a lot of um, negative energy. And I, and I, I you know, I had to get past my own cynicism to go like, you know what, I, I would like to right. do this. Is this actually helpful yeah. in, a, in a sincere, yeah. real way? Yeah. And like, what and is, you've been to what Puerto is Rico it? and Guatemala and Lebanon. I mean, you've really been all over the world. Those were all vacations, but yes. <laughs> I, um, I <laughs> also enough. did some. Yes. TNEC. Um, I believe yeah. you were in TNEC. Uh, um, no, I mean, look, it's, it, obviously there's stuff going on all over the place, and the, the refugee issue is one that is happening all over the world. You know, we, we see what's going on in our country and with the border issue and, and, you know, in Central America, but it's happening everywhere. There's, you know, like 65 million or so displaced people in the world, and uh, there are 25 million actual refugees, people who are, you know, fleeing violence and persecution and, and have been forced to leave their homes uh, due to war and, and, and th you know, events that are beyond their control. And they're just like you and I, people who just happen to have a bomb fall on their house, you know, or just happen to have a war happen in, in, in their neighborhood and are, have to flee. And so, you know, this sort of demonization of these people as, you know, the scary other who want to take over, um, you know, our country, I just think is totally false. And, um, you know, 
our country is made up of refugees and immigrants, and this is happening in other countries too that are getting the influx. So for me, I'm just trying to like help tell the stories of people as human beings, so you can see them as you know people like you are and I who are just trying to really get back home. Um, and the actual numbers of what's going on in the world in terms of people who are resettling in other countries is very, very minimal of all those millions of people. There's like half a percent who actually settle. Like one half a percent of, of those 25 million refugees are actually settling in other countries. Um, they're most, most of them are going right to countries that are around where the problems are, and those countries are overloaded. And so, you know, the people who end up here, who we end up helping, are actually very additive to the economy, and, and neighborhoods become safer, and, you know, the, the narrative is just all flipped around. So I just want to try to get that message out there uh, as much as I can. Wow. Well, I love you for that. Um, I also really want you to now switch gears, and I really want to close the night out with just, you know, uh, a really funny, <laughs> no pressure. All right. Remember, you said like the difference between doing them live or in my podcast. This right. is where it gets harder. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I have. I don't have like some like an incredibly funny uh, bad audition. So I I had many many bad auditions of jobs that I didn't get. Or, and I and for there were years that I was auditioning like two three years where I just was not getting anything, no callbacks. And then I started to get some callbacks, and then I would get. I was never never a good auditioner, but I'd get to the point where I get a callback, and then I'd freeze up or get nervous in the callback. There was a movie called White Palace with Susan Sarandon that I uh, got to like th three callbacks and then you know auditioned with her and I froze up with her on the audition and James Spader got it. Um, he is never gonna be on this podcast. Yeah. Um, you give me all those names. <laughs> <laughs> I was very close on my cousin Vinny. I know. That's exactly how I felt. For the Ralph Macchio part? No, the Joe Mitchell, Pesci? the Mitchell Whitfield oh, role. Oh, yeah, again. his friend. Yeah, yeah. he was. And, he yeah. was pretty good though. Yeah, he yeah. was adorable. He was great. He, he was did great. great. I did not deserve to get it because I, I, I tanked it in the in the callback. Um, and then, uh, but there's one. It was I forget. I, I also blocked out a lot of the. You do. You have to block it out. It's protective. It's yeah, because it really instinct. is humiliating, and you go in there, and I go. I never got one commercial, or, you know, um, you know, they say like go in and just like you know, look like you're having fun and and just like laugh, and you know, I couldn't even do that. Um, but I there was a play. It was somewhere. I mean, I don't think it was at this theater, but it was like one of these off Broadway. I think it was like in the '40s. Uh, might have been like Manhattan Theater Club or something like that, and uh, it was a <laughs> it was a monologue. I, for, I honestly forget the name of the play, but it was a monologue. A kid comes in talking about um, uh, his uh, this thing that happened to him at uh, he's a Jewish kid that happened to him at a bris. So he's telling the story. About uh, you know, the, the, I even forget what the story was about. But it was something, something, something. This happened, and then at the Bris, this happened, and then this that happened at the Bris, and um, only me, 
being the you know half Jewish, half Irish Catholic kid who had gotten bar mitzvah, but that was it, um, went in thinking bris was brie. <laughs> it was pronounced brie. So it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. Brie is a cheese. Got it. But bris is not. So I do this monologue on a stage like this. And, and anybody who's auditioned and knows the experience of auditioning on a stage, which is worse than auditioning, you know, in like you audition for a movie in a room or whatever. But like you go on the stage and there's like three people. It's the director and the producer sitting in the middle of the house. And so you come out, you do your thing. Hi, I'm Ben Stiller or whatever. And then I do this whole monologue, this, this, and the Brie. And then that happened at the Brie. And that happened at the Brie. <laughs> and I finish, and I finish, and um, the director says, thank you very much, and I'm walking out, and he goes, oh, and by the way, it's Briss. <laughs> and I did not get the part. No, but think how happy you made them. <laughs> they had been sitting there all day. <laughs> Finally. Somebody. Um, Jerry Stiller's good thinks it's yeah, Brie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we were talking about that before. Like, you've had some nice things happen in your life, but probably the best is that you don't have to audition anymore. Well, it's a barrier of entry. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I'm glad that for I you. have that. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, and I would. I have volunteered to audition for things because I think it helps as a director. I really appreciate when people come yeah. in and read, but I also appreciate as an actor how hard it is. So I never judge, you know, speaking of Owen Wilson, he came into audition for The Cable Guy and did not do a great audition, but was so funny and talented. And actually Judd Avatar, we were in the room together and I was like, God, that guy, Owen, that's how I met Owen. He's, that guy's really funny. But that audition was like a little shaky, and, and Judd, to his credit, was like, "Come on, that guy is really funny." Yeah. Like, you know, the audition is the audition, but I think he can do it. You and should be models together. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Right. <laughs> and you were. You also, from the very beginning, made your own work. You made stuff. So whether yeah. someone gave you permission or not, you gave yourself permission to do it, and I think that's like a huge takeaway, right? Like whatever your passion is, be it in the arts, anything you want to do, like. Make it, make yeah. it. Yeah, and especially nowadays, I mean, it's everybody can make their own thing, you know, and I think it's almost, it's almost necessary. You have to put yourself out there like that. Yeah, and also, when you're meeting someone, knock on the door, put a baby <laughs> on the floor, and run away. For me, that's the takeaway from this. Yes. If, I, if I leave with one thing. <laughs> Do, Yes. yes. Okay. Do that. Do that. <laughs> I guess I want to ask you one thing, having, having sort of watched this arc of your life. Um, do you feel successful? Um, that's a good question. Um, I feel very uh, grateful for the success that I've had because I know how tough this business is, having experienced it and... Um, I think, you know, success, how do you define success? I think... Brie. Brie, exactly. Um, I, I feel that... Uh, no, I f I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to have choices. I think whether you're an actor or a 
filmmaker, uh, filmmaker, you have to make your own choices. But as an actor, if you have any choice at all, you're very fortunate. And to be able to get to that place where uh, the ability to do that and to follow, you know, the areas that I'm interested in and, you know, I, do I feel like, do I sit back and go like, hey, I'm really successful? Um, sure. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do that often. Um, I just wanted to give yes. you an opportunity to say that <laughs> but I do. publicly. <laughs> but I do think, you know, you, you, you can't not feel grateful when, you, when you're able to, to do what you love to do. Um, and that's, that's a reality you see in, in the world. Like so many people, you know, don't have that chance. Um, so, yes. That's, I'm going to end with yes. I want to um, thank you for coming on the podcast tonight. I want to thank all of you for coming out on a Monday night. Um, my next time up here is gonna be with Duncan Sheik and Lynn Nottage and Susan Birkenhead who um, have adapted The Secret Life of Bees that will be performed here on the stage. I hope you'll come see that. Um, yes, I will. <laughs> I hope I'm you guys there. will all come see that. Anyway, it is, uh, it is uh, when is it? Uh, in June. Okay, I'm in. Um, basically, like the folks in the elevator who are stuck together, let's all meet here again to see more theater. Yes. Ben Stiller, it has been so much fun having you here today. It's nice to reconnect with you yes. after a few years. Yeah. Yes, it's been a while. It's been I have, a minute. Yes, it has what? been a minute. I have that exact jacket. I almost wore it. I'm glad I didn't. That would have been, been weird. Yeah, and then we would have been literally like matching. Yeah. All right. Anyway, thank you all. Get home safe. It's been thank wonderful. You. Thank you. The great playwright Terence McNally was honored this year at the Tony Awards with a Lifetime Achievement Award. I've been so inspired by his plays, and one of the greatest thrills of my career was being asked to be a part of a documentary celebrating Terence McNally's life and his impact on the American theater. Director Cheryl Caller invited me, Billy Porter, Nicolette Robinson, Jason Daniele, and others to do a reading of Terrence's play Noon, which was a part of a trilogy of plays called Morning, Noon, and Night. For the film, we sat around the table reading the play, talking about its issues, and much of that scene is captured in the documentary, now streaming on American Masters, Terrence McNally, Every Act of Life. And now you can watch this incredible documentary by going to pbs.org slash American Masters, where it will be streaming forevermore. Enjoy. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Do you believe in stories? I know I do. 
Do you feel like there is more to your story? Personally, I feel like there's more to every story. And I got some good news. There's this great company called The Pocket Media Group, and they can help you find the more in your story and tell it so it connects to the people you most want to reach. They specialize in video, photography, writing, design, branding, and strategy, all the pieces you need to start something new or polish up something old. And they understand that story, whether it's a photograph, a video, or words on a page, powerfully connects people and ideas. So whether you're a not-for-profit, a company, or just good old you with an idea, whatever your story, mission, or message, reach out to the people at The Pocket Media Group at www.thepocketmediagroup.com and let them help you start telling your story. Because look, we know there is definitely more to your story. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.